This is Aspen Insight from the Aspen Institute. I'm Marcy Krivenen. And I'm Zach St. Louis. Our goal is to take you through the Institute's halls and introduce you to people who are working to break down the divisions we face in society and tackle some of the world's most complex problems. If you're wondering what our organization is, we'll let Walter Isaacson fill you in. He's the Aspen Institute's president and CEO. The Aspen Institute, at its core, tries to help people understand values and how to lead a more productive, meaningful, and significant life. Each month, Marcy and I will bring you guests that, we hope, will inspire you to do all of those things. Here's what's ahead in our first episode. I'm going to show you how a community college is giving high school students a taste of the college experience and introduce you to a student who got to college with help from the program. And the removal of Confederate statues is a source of tension in the U.S. We sit down with three of our fellows from the U.S. and South Africa to get a global perspective on the statues and racism around the world. But first, we hear from someone who confronted racism head-on, alongside Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We had our colleague Michelle Norris talk to Clarence B. Jones. Michelle runs an institute program called The Bridge, which focuses on race, cultural identity, and inclusion. She pulled Jones aside during this summer's Aspen Ideas Festival to talk about what it was like to work with Dr. King. Thanks for joining me, Michelle. Marcy, it's great to be with you. So can you set up this interview for us? What are we about to hear? This is an interview with Clarence B. Jones. He is a professor. He is uh, a man who holds a very important place in history. He is a financier. He is a man who's worn many hats. He was the personal attorney, speechwriter, and confidant to the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. And we sat down and talked to him at the Ideas Festival about his relationship with Dr. King and what we should look to in this moment when America is so divided around race and identity, what lessons we should take from Dr. King and also what things we should perhaps know about the price of leadership in a divided moment when someone actually steps into a moment like this What price do they pay? And as someone who was so close to Dr. King, he could really help us understand that. Let's get to the interview. Here's Michelle with Clarence Jones at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Civil rights in America is taught to varying degrees, if it is taught at all, in American schools and at university. So most students who are educated in America, you know, they learn about the civil rights movement to varying degrees. And to the extent that they do learn about the civil rights movement, the one person that they always learn about, Mm -hmm. they may not learn about C.T. Vivian. They may not learn about Reverend Lowry. They may not learn about Fannie Lou Hammer. But they always learn about Dr. King. Mm -hmm. But even though they learn about Dr. King, Mm -hmm. do they really understand the man in full? No. They do not. In 12 years and four months... From 1956 until April 4th, 1968, the date of his assassination, with the exception of the presidency of Abraham Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation of 1863, Martin Luther King Jr. 
may have done more to achieve political, social justice, racial justice and equality than any other person or event in the previous 240-year history of the United States of America. So to the extent you're a professor, so yeah. you give your students a syllabus, right, and right. people who listen to this podcast yeah, right. you can view as your students in some yeah. way. Oh, yeah, so yeah. what are the things that they need to know about Dr. King that perhaps they don't know? Give me a few examples. What are the few things that maybe they need to know about the civil rights movement that they don't know? He frequently bristled at the repetitive reparation as, quote, a civil rights leader, close quote. He didn't like being called a civil rights leader. Uh, no, he did not, in fact. He bristled at it. And it really came to a high point when after he gave this extraordinary speech on April 4th, 1967 at Riverside Church in New York. That was an important speech. Imposing the war in Vietnam. He received a cascade of criticism from other civil rights leaders, other people, and the common denominator of that criticism, well, he's a civil rights leader. What does he know anything about? Speaking about American foreign policy. And his response then, and his response before then, and his response after them, and said, hold on, I'm a minister of the gospel. I'm a minister of God before I was ever a so-called civil rights leader. And as a minister of the gospel, I do not segregate my moral concerns. And in the case of speaking about the war in Vietnam, the war in Vietnam is either morally right or morally wrong. So you mentioned that you talked to him on the phone all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and people may know that there were recordings of Dr. King, that the oh, FBI oh, was listening even... in on many of those Excuse me. Those this, conversations. Is humor, this is humorous because we would often have conference calls late at night. And after I'd had uh, uh, earlier two martinis and a glass of Jack Daniels, the conference calls would only take, take place around about 10, 30, 11 o'clock New York time. And when the conference calls would be convened, I'd get on, and I'd say, now, hold on, uh, Mr. FBI person. Uh, you got your pencil and pad ready? And Martin Kling would say, Clarence, will you stop this nonsense? Subsequently, I learned under the Freedom of Information Act from July 13th to December 31st, 1967, when Ramsey Clark became Attorney General. From July 13th, 1963, from December 31st, 1967, Every single telephone conversation, every single one, it took place between Martin Luther King Jr. and myself, was wiretapped, the substance of our conversations transcribed, put in a file, marked, top secret. You know, there's an irony, though. All those conversations were tapped. Right. And transcribed. Mm. And through a freedom of information request, a FOIA request, you now have... Mm -hmm. Huge files. Huge files. Right. And so you have this incredible historic document. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. That provides an insight into Dr. King's life and his leadership. Oh, yeah, yeah. And also the toll that activism takes on him. And this is one of the, the you know, I guess, less, less things I want to talk to you about is, is the lesson for today. And one of the things that people don't know about Dr. King is to take on the role of an activist. You ask a lot of yourself. People see the public persona, but people don't always understand well, let me the just personal, say this. Let me just say the subject the to, personal toll that that takes. Subject to things I'm writing in my memoir. Uh, he, um, particularly uh, from 66 to 68, 
experienced a substantial amount of depression. By the way, in 1967, a whole group of so-called establishment prominent Negroes, they all called him up to tell him how wrong he was. Some because of them. he was taking on the yeah, Vietnam right, right. War. He was yeah. saying the U.S. Yeah. was wrong. And they would say to him, well, you know, Martin's a civil rights leader. He ought to know better than that. You can bookend his life by the letter from the Birmingham jail and the speech he gave on April 4th, 1967, time to break the silence. Yes, I know he gave the March on Washington, the I Have a Dream speech. I know he gave a fantastic speech, which I had. We consulted on March 31st. 1968 at the National Cathedral, okay, five days before he's assassinated, gave an extraordinary speech at the end of the march uh, from um, uh, Selma to Montgomery. Extraordinary speech. Gave and Cobo Hall in Detroit. Uh, Let's not what? forget that. Oh, and Cobo oh, and Cobo Hall is when he first used, no, no, the second time he used I have a GC, mm-hmm. okay? So all I'm simply saying, those are great speeches. But if you go and read carefully, his speech, Time to Break the Sun. In fact... So that's on your syllabus for our listeners. They need to go and take a look at that speech. They need to go and take a look at that speech. There's a section of my syllabus that says, why do we teach the course? And the reason we teach the course is that we have come to the conclusion that it is impossible in America today for there to be an honest discussion about race or for the government or private institutions develop programs in response to so-called issues of race relations unless they have gone back to study the institution of slavery and its concomitant doctrine of white supremacy. Because race in America today is a direct reflection of the consequential impact of the legacy of the institution of slavery and the doctrine of white supremacy on subsequent generations of the children and great-great-grandchildren of slaves and slaveholders. Race is the 800-pound gorilla in America's living room. It cannot be avoided. No kinds of government institutional programs can be designed to respond to the issues unless you go back and look at it. Well, I have appreciated your spending time with us oh, no, it's my to honor. share your wisdom, to talk about hard truths, and to school us all with the syllabus yeah, that you shared with us I have to apologize if I got a little peachy. That's okay. I don't mean to. That's That's, right. You can blame right. that on Martin King. Right? <laughs> Clarence B. Jones is a scholar-writer-in-residence at Stanford's Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute. Michelle Norris is an award-winning journalist and founder of the Race Card Project. She leads a program called The Bridge at the Aspen Institute, and she's here to tell me about how her program and her conversation with Dr. Jones weave together. Marcy, I love sitting down and talking to Dr. Jones. There, there is a, a moment when you talk to him and you realize that you're, you're literally facing history. And there are very few people who are alive who are in that inner circle um, with Dr. King. John Lewis, Andrew Young, Clarence Jones. I mean, th- that number, um, unfortunately, is getting smaller every year. As a professor, Jones teaches his students about the history of slavery. He says it's impossible to have an honest conversation about race 
unless Americans go back and study slavery and white supremacy. How does his comment tie into the work that you're doing for the Aspen Institute with your program, The Bridge? Well, it, it you know, his comment resonates with me, and it ties directly to the work that we're trying to do. We are trying very hard to create a space where people can talk across difference, where people can talk about identity, where people can talk about race, where people can talk about culture and understand life as lived um, by someone who follows perhaps a different path. You really can't understand America if you're not willing to look at the role and the thread of, of race in America. And you can't understand America unless you understand the role that slavery played in the creation of America and the role that the vestiges of a system built around slavery still plays out and exists today. And the work that we do at the bridge is built on a foundation of the work that we've done for some time in the Race Card Project where we collect personal narratives. And and through those personal narratives, um, it, it gives us a window, a way to talk about this really difficult subject in a really personal way. And what is your goal with the program, with the bridge? What would you like to see happen with it? We're at a moment of great division in America. I'm not saying we're more divided than we've been in the past, but the divisions are much more evident. And they're playing out in very real ways. And not just when you turn on the radio, when you switch on the news, when you pick up a newspaper. This is playing out in in very real and granular ways, in classrooms, in break rooms. It is affecting productivity in factories, large and small. Um, part of it is because of politics. Part of it is because of changing demographics. The changing demographics that look like progress to some feel like a thunderclap you know, to someone else, like a train bearing down on them. And so our goal is to create a, a program that people can look to to help lead in this area so that people can have conversations. We hope that through the success of this program that the Aspen Institute is seen as a place where people are willing to have difficult conversations, where will, people are um, can turn to Aspen for productive dialogue on something that's very difficult. Aspen's known for that right now on all kinds of things, peace in the Middle East, climate change, cybersecurity. We're hoping that over time people will also see the Aspen Institute as a place that is willing to take a hard look at the issues that divide us in America on race and identity. Michelle Norris, thank you so much. Marcy, thank you. Good to be with you. You're listening to Aspen Insight, a new show from the Aspen Institute. Each month, Marcy and I will guide you through the halls of our organization and expose you to the impactful work being done here. Find Aspen Insight on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, back to the show. Over the past several months, it's been really hard to ignore the controversy surrounding the removal of Confederate symbols from cities around the country. From New Orleans. About 700 protesters faced off yesterday in New Orleans where several monuments are being removed. To Charlottesville, Virginia. Opposing protesters marched Sunday to a statue honoring Confederate General Robert E. Lee. These events are bringing the legacy of slavery in the U.S. back into the national conversation, along with debate over its impact on race in America today. Our next segment is one of those difficult conversations about confronting our history. It was recorded with three institute leaders at an annual event we host at our campus in Aspen, Colorado. At the Resnick Aspen Action Forum in July, our fellows Nikki Irvin. I'm a member of the Henry Crown Fellowship, and I'm from Los Angeles. Michael Allen. With the Liberty Fellowship 
and I'm living in Greenville, South Carolina. And Heather Son, investor in South Africa and part of the second class of Africa Leadership Initiative, South Africa. All sat down in our studio to talk about the concept of truth and reconciliation. Truth and reconciliation was a topic of discussion at the Action Forum, and it's a term that actually comes from post-apartheid policies in South Africa. It's this idea that before a society can move on from some kind of collective trauma, there needs to be an agreement of the facts and the truth needs to be discussed. Nikki and Michael, who are both African-American, are going to talk about how this process could be applied to tackle the lasting impact of slavery here in America. But Heather, who is South African, starts with what we can all learn from her country's history. Here's their conversation. South Africa did go through a process of truth and reconciliation, and in doing that, it considered its options, which on the far extremes were amnesia, so simply as a nation to forget and move on. And on the other end, the other extreme, was uh, something akin to an international court, Um, South Africa rejected both those options for various reasons, the most important of it being that people really felt that they needed to know the truth. And they felt the feeling was that if you were going to suffer any sort of um, being persecuted, you wouldn't tell the truth. Um, And if we simply forgot, well, it's not possible to forget, it would simply be a band-aid over the problem. And we needed to find each other as a nation, and we needed to tell each other the truth. Michael, you're a member of the Liberty Fellows, and I remember in the Action Forum two years ago, a panel on stage describing how they collaborated to bring down the Confederate flag. And this was something that was long in the making, I mean, probably decades. But because of the shootings in the church at Mother Emanuel and all the accumulation of these fatal encounters with police, that uh, this group of leaders were able to really act to remove a very painful symbol from our past. And that example alone lets me know that truth and reconciliation doesn't have to be an abstract thing, that when people are purposeful and there are truths that you really can't avert your eyes from, that through this collaborative effort with business, with nonprofit, with electeds uh, at the table, we can make progress. And I would maintain that some of the reasons why we continue to have these eruptions is the fact that this country has gone down the amnesia track. I think truth, truth and reconciliation is a, is a powerful way for us to, to um, take forward steps. Yeah, and the reconciliation part of the flag was removing it totally. And so until everybody understand the truth that this symbol has a pain for a certain amount of South Carolinians, that truth finally came to light. Mm. Um, The idea and concept of symbols is so important. Even today in South Africa, we are challenging symbols of colonialism. And the students uprising have been trying to pull down statues. But I think ultimately we come to the conclusion that these symbols are quite invisible to some. They just become part of the landscape. And for others, it's a constant reminder of their unequalness. And I think as long as there are symbols in society, which in the hearts and minds and attitudes of some keep them as less than, 
then they must be removed. They don't serve. And then we need to look at what symbols or collective actions can we raise up and put on pedestals as a sign of us celebrating our collective identity rather than one that favors one's interpretation of history versus another, particularly if that history served to oppress one group. But I think a big part of what we learned from South Africa is the importance of acknowledging uh, what happened. There's a great line in Archbishop Tutu's book entitled No Future Without Forgiveness, which says denial subverted her personhood. And what that meant, unless her experience of being oppressed was heard and she was seen, and the perpetrator, even if it's not the person who actually was the perpetrator of that specific crime, could acknowledge and hear and see her and have a new conversation about who they are as people. So black and white people acknowledging what the one group suffered at the hands of others, whether they were in that historic moment or not. Because what we see in all our countries is that the beneficiaries of the initial act typically tend to hold on to power, hold on to access, hold on to um, resources, which then repeat offense. So it limits the ability of black people in this country and South Africa to get access to education, to climb out of the poverty trap, good health care, good access to information, to know how to look after oneself, to look after one's financial well-being. All these things are left um, are not as, as there's not equal access, and then we tend to reoffend, and typically along color lines again. And then we call it things like classism, or we insult people by saying they don't work hard enough, and all these things because we move away from that initial historic fact uh, that skewed everything. You know, in the South African example, you had the benefit of proximity and time. And in the United States, the legacy of slavery is 400 plus years old. And many people feel like, well, let's let sleeping dogs lie. You know, we've, we're making progress as a nation. Let's not wake up all those old bad stories. And I would believe that until we wake up and acknowledge and confront those, uh, we'll still be haunted by them. I think that um, if you take the slavery and one thing that the U.S. has not really done is really kind of bring it and say there was there was an issue with it and there was a pain caused from it and there was years of pain caused from it. The longer that you keep it in the closet, it's going to always bother you. So I think that it needs to be out. The problem is that we need to recognize that fact yes. as a society. It's almost like building a house on shaky foundations. So if you don't build a society on foundations of complete inclusion, where the, the story is told from both perspectives, the symbols revere the efforts of, of all parties, if you don't do that, you're asking one section of the society to check a part of their being at the door, which means that they are not in their full power. So just by definition, you will never have the full potential of your society. So it's as simple as that. And maybe, I mean, I'm not saying this as a sweeping generalization, but I do know from my own experiences that when you suppress emotions, there are a lot, there's a lot of good 
you also suppress and maybe it limits your access to your humanity. And I always marvel at the U.S. because I think, um, you know, the value of the dollar is so important. And what I know about my continent and where I come from, the value of values and of humanity and of connectedness is paramount to all things. In the U.S., there's a value of wealth and wealth accumulation and who's, who's doing better than the next person as being God. But the suppression of the humanity is locked in this history. So I think there's a, a very valuable unlocking of true human potential and true potential of the society, society to achieve its full ambition by going back and, and really launching the spoil. I'm uh, thinking about Georgetown University as you speak, Heather, and how they've, uh, with a full apology from their president, recognized the fact that the university employed something like 242 slaves and derived great and measurable economic benefit from people working without payment. And that's just one institution. I mean, multiply that across higher education and then look at it across, you know, government and how millions of dollars were generated on the on the backs and through the, the work of families um, whose descendants... Michael and I come from the the obvious question is yes you apologized so what next and I do know that Georgetown did make a certain amount of uh, funds available for bursaries for black students and so on but I think something else is required and the best uh, way I can uh, describe it it's an attitude it's an attitude of acknowledgement so that it starts to influence how you see everything we need to come to an understanding of each other so that we not, I am not my brother's keeper. I begin to see that I am my brother and his experience is my experience. He hurts and bleeds, I hurt and bleed. And that's what I mean about the lens of an attitude so that Everything we do, because unless we do that, we, we run the risk of repeat offending. Understanding each other also comes from education of that hurt. The people that you're trying to get to understand you, they don't know the history. So the history that I'm trying to expose on slavery, on the slave trade, those things matter to help understand why we feel this way, why you still have hurt, why you still have pain. And until you understand that or hear that and learn that, then it's, it, you probably won't be able to empathize with the way that I'm feeling. So you're going to be confused. You're going to get frustrated. Why do you keep talking about this? And so that education part needs to be there as well. Yeah. In South Africa, when we were at this stage, we spoke about black hurt and white shame. And uh, so both sides of the, of the spectrum have something to gain from the healing. Uh, but at the base of all of that, there are emotions that are unresolved. And that's what I mean about the attitude. And I hear over and over again in America is black people saying, we're tired. 
We were saying, why do we have to keep trying to convince you? We don't want anything from you. We're not. We just ask you to see your humanity in us and allow us to see our humanity in you. And I think it really requires the other side of this equation to really wake up to the fact that there's something for everyone to gain. Everybody's tired and everybody needs to start putting things down. And I think that being proximate, being near to each other allows us to feel that pain on one hand, that shame on the other, and to realize that we're both locked into this cycle, almost hostage to our history, until and unless we go no more. That was Institute Fellows Nikki Irvin with the California Community Foundation, Heather Son, an investor in South Africa, and South Carolina-based architect Michael Allen. That discussion was powerful. Is this a typical conversation at the Action Forum? Yeah, it is. I mean, you'll hear conversations like this between all of the fellows all week. I was at the Action Forum this summer, and they're all out there to figure out how to use their professional background to make society better. And what's amazing about the fellows is that they're all already leaders in whatever they do, in business, in government. But we bring them all together to have these conversations, to meet people they wouldn't otherwise meet, reflect, and then take all of this stuff that they've learned back out into the world to have an impact. Where do all of these leaders come from? Well, all of the fellows are part of the Aspen Global Leadership Network, which is a group of about 2,500 fellows all over the world. And you can learn more about them and the Action Forum at agln.aspeninstitute.org. Hey, Zach. Hey, Marcy. Since we're sort of roaming the metaphoric hallways of the Aspen Institute in this show, why don't we tell everyone what we do for the Institute? Yeah, sure. So I work on the communications team, which basically means that I help get the word out about all of our work here and all of the Institute's events and with really interesting people. I mean, just in the last few months, we've had White House officials and Supreme Court justices. And just last week, we had the Major League Baseball commissioner. So it's all kinds of different people who come through here. And I help make sure people know about it. And it's a lot of fun. What about you? So I helped put together the Aspen, Colorado-based Aspen Ideas Festival. You may have heard about it. It happens every June. And I also produce another podcast called Aspen Ideas to Go. And one thing people might not know just by listening to this is that I'm actually sitting in our D.C. office where I'm based, our headquarters. And you're out in Aspen at our campus there, way up in the mountains in Colorado. Yes, we're very far away from one another, but I feel the love, Zach. (laughs) Me too. And uh, I think one thing that you and I both have in common is that we're so curious about the work that we do here that goes beyond what we do in our office each day to learn about what our programs are doing to honestly make the world better. It's so true. I mean, I feel extremely privileged to be able to tell these amazing stories. So let's get back to it. Here's the rest of today's episode. So, Zach, you have our last piece of the show, and it's about education. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. So one day last year, I was in the Institute's lobby and came across a report from our College Excellence Program. 
Their work revolves around creating better policies and improving leadership in higher education with a special focus on community colleges. So what's in the report? It highlights some what I think are really creative ways that community colleges are breaking down structural barriers and helping students who otherwise might not get a chance to go to college. One story in the report that really caught my eye is about a community college in Texas that's going above and beyond when it comes to getting students from high school to college. Sounds like a great story. Let's hear it. To kick things off, I went right to the source. A student. Hi, Paulina. How's it going? Uh, Good, Zach. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for talking. When I spoke to Paulina Guerrero, she was a senior at the University of Texas at El Paso. I caught her in the middle of a busy week, and she looked a little worn down in a way that could only mean it was exam season. Right now, I'm like on midterm brain, four hours of sleep. She made some time to speak with me on Skype in between studying and meeting with a recruiter for the Peace Corps. But while Paulina's taking exams and getting ready for graduation, many of her peers won't be. I know a lot of uh, friends who are scared of going to college because they don't want to get in debt. I've also heard people are scared of going to college or that they don't feel it's necessary, especially if they already have a job, which is really popular in this region. A lot of people get jobs uh, in high school and they kind of stay in their jobs. So college is kind of put on the back burner. These reasons Paulina's friends give for not going to college are really common in El Paso, where only about 55% of students go on from high school to any form of higher education. Nationally, that number is closer to 70%, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It's not just El Paso, either. Across the country, the number of students attending college after high school is falling, even though the number of high school graduates is going up. It turns out that the communities that are seeing the most dramatic drops actually have a lot in common. So there are some structural issues in society that are making it difficult for historically underserved populations from entering higher education. Bob Templin is a senior fellow with the College Excellence Program here at the Aspen Institute. He has been at the helm of community colleges for more than three decades, most recently as president of Northern Virginia Community College. And his work here revolves around helping colleges better serve their students, especially low-income and minority students. His office also happens to be right across the hall from mine, so I went over to ask him more about this and about the similarities he sees among these places where students just aren't going to college. He told me that a lot of immigrant communities, like El Paso, which sits right on the U.S.-Mexico border, face a lot of barriers when it comes to accessing higher education. We're watching uh, immigrants from all over the world come to the United States, as they always have. But what's different now is that uh, in the late 19th century and early 20th century, they would come to our shores and land at Ellis Island. And with a strong work ethic and a a strong back, they could achieve the American dream. That's not true anymore. Immigrants represent the fastest growing part of the U.S. population. And Bob explained to me how important it is that they go to college. It is vital to the interest of our country that all segments of our population are getting the knowledge and skill required to be full participants. And now that means a post-secondary education. Today's economy almost demands that a person go on to college, which puts these students from immigrant communities at a huge disadvantage because there are societal issues that have been built like walls over time that keep them out of higher education. Bob told me that these issues unfortunately don't have simple solutions, but a really good place to start is a student's family. The challenge is is that most of, of the people that I'm talking about 
do not have anyone in their family who can guide them into uh, moving into post-secondary education. They're first-time, first-generation college goers, and they may have or may not have the support of their parents uh, to continue their education, but they certainly don't know how to do that effectively. Having parents who didn't go to college and either don't understand or don't see the value in higher education makes the student less likely to go themselves, and therefore less likely to get on a successful career path to the middle class. Paulina Guerrero seems to fit the description of one of these students that's less likely to go to college. She's from an immigrant community in El Paso, a first-generation American whose parents did not, at least initially, attend college. But speaking with her, it's clear that she's thriving at university and has big plans for after graduation. So what is it that's allowed her to succeed? Well, there's no doubt that she's a driven student, and her parents definitely did encourage her. But there's something else. I could see a little bit of the college environment When I was in high school, little by little, I started to notice, oh, wow, I can do all of these things. I can get scholarships. I can get grants. It's doable. I just have to look for the resources. She means that she could see the college environment pretty literally. She went to something called an early college high school. It's a program led by El Paso Community College where students are able to take college courses in high school, earn their associate's degree at the same time as their high school diploma, and then transfer directly to a four-year institution. I spoke to Dr. William Serrata, who's the president of El Paso Community College. We're extremely proud of our early college high school system. The goal of the program is to break down some of these barriers and help students get to college. And it's an issue that Dr. Serrata is extremely passionate about, in part because he sees himself in his students. That was me nearly 30 years ago. I'm a first-generation college student. I'm the oldest in my family. I was born and raised on the border, and I struggled tremendously in my undergrad um, because I didn't understand the system of higher ed. Helping students navigate applications, financial aid, and this process that otherwise seems so complex is a big part of the program and helps them get in a college-bound mentality. To do that, they're trying to reach students earlier than just their junior or senior year of high school when colleges typically start recruiting. They're engaging students from the beginning of high school and even earlier. And a key part of that is engaging the parents. For a period of time, there was this myth that Latino or Hispanic populations didn't want their kids to go to college. I'm glad to hear that the myth has been uh, broken tremendously. They see that opportunity of, of understanding that a degree opens doors for their children. What they don't understand is the system of higher ed. To engage the parents effectively, Dr. Serrata told me that the process has to begin long before high school. The parental involvement specialists tell us that they get 100% of parents to participate in elementary school. By the time they get to middle school, you get about 50% of parents to participate. And by the time you get to high school, you're lucky if you can get 15 to 20%. The most influential people on a student going to college is their parents. This community college has actually adopted elementary schools in the hope of getting those students to college too, because they know that that's when these students will start deciding if higher education is in their future. Some of the things they do are run activities for the students and their parents. They even start referring to the students as the class of the year that they'll eventually graduate college. And they take them on field trips to visit colleges. We get them and bus them to our campuses and we don't do tours. We do campus experiences, really getting them engaged so that they understand that the expectation that we built these campuses for them. El Paso Community College adopts elementary schools and partners with high schools to create a culture within those schools where going to college is an expectation. And it's working. 74% of students who attend the early college high schools end up graduating with an associate's degree. That's not only higher than the average in El Paso, it's higher than the national average overall. 
And for a student like Paulina, setting that expectation from an early age absolutely played a part in her decision to attend college. In my schools, I remember that it was kind of just assumed that you would go to college after high school. Like, I never thought of not going to college. El Paso Community College has been successful with this early college high school program because they think of themselves as just one part of a student's journey that spans from elementary school all the way through to a career. And by finding those partners that sit at other stages of the journey, they've tremendously improved outcomes for their students. And Bob tells me that this way of breaking down barriers is something that all community colleges should start doing. Community colleges are the first line of defense for the country. And it's very important that community colleges think very systematically and intentionally about uh, ways that they can break down these barriers and how they can work with other organizations in the community to help these students not only enter, uh, but then navigate their institutions and become successful graduates. I see the, um, the robe in the background. Yeah, I don't know what to do with it. So it's just kind of like still hanging there. I caught up with Paulina over the summer, just after her graduation. And she filled me in on her plans for the future. I actually got accepted into a Peace Corps program. I kind of hoping that the experience will help me figure out what exactly what I want to do. Though Paulina might not know exactly what her future holds, it's clear that it's going to be a bright one. So Zach, it seems like that program is really helping more students get to college. Yeah, it really is. But our colleagues in the College Excellence Program explained to me that accessing college is just one piece of the puzzle. Making sure that students have the support and resources to complete college and then transition successfully to life after college are equally as important. To learn more about all of this work, you can visit highered.aspeninstitute.org. And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening to the first episode of Aspen Insight. To learn more about the show and the topics discussed in this episode, visit aspeninstitute.org insight. Aspen Insight is a production of the Aspen Institute, and the Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Next month on Aspen Insight, a longtime producer for CBS News doesn't want the world to forget about Syria. So, you know, we're helping Syrians to basically find and tell the truth about what's happening in their own country. And as simple as it sounds, it's really, really hard. As foreign reporters flee Syria because of the violence, young Syrian journalists step in to tell the stories of their neighbors. More next time on Aspen Insight. I'm Marcy Krivenen. And I'm Zach St. Louis. Thanks for listening.